Good morning, Valley Forge, King of Prussia and the greater Philadelphia area. This is We the People, the Constitution Matters, coming to you over the freedom airways of WFYL. I'm your host, Pastor David Whitney, and I serve as the senior instructor at Institute on the Constitution. And my two wonderful gentlemen collaborator scholars this morning are Phil Duffy, our constitutional instructor, and Mike Jeremita, who we call our warrior in the courtroom, defending the God-given right to keep and bear arms. And by the way, Mike has a show just before ours on Friday morning at 7 a.m., Mike G. in the morning. Invite you to tune in and, and catch the insights uh, for Mike and his uh, guests. But we're in a series right now looking at the reports of Alexander Hamilton, which give us a bit of insight into what at least some of those in the beginning of our constitutional republic, how they interpreted the Constitution. And of course, we're going to debate whether they were properly interpreting the Constitution or improperly interpreting it, but it's valuable to get a little insight as to where things began to go off track, at least in my point of view. Because when we look at where we're at today and you compare the standard our founders constructed this constitutional republic on, and I would dare say if they were to come back from eternity, which is impossible, but were they to do so, uh, and take a look at where we're at and how our country is functioning, I do believe they would not recognize it. They would say this is <laughs> there's nothing in what we structured as the constitutional republic that is being followed. The most important principles that we laid down in the founding documents are being rejected and pummeled. And uh, the question is, when did this begin and, and how did it begin? And so looking into Alexander Hamilton's three reports in this miniseries, we get a little bit of an insight into that. Uh, last week, we looked at report number one, and today we're going to take a look at number two. Phil, why don't you bring us your thoughts on Hamilton's second report? Well, the official title of this document is The Final Version of the Second Report on the Further Provision Necessary for Establishing Public Credit. It is also known as the report on a national bank. Hamilton had a wait with words, and it wasn't pretty. The report was communicated to Congress on December 14, 1790, more than 11 months after Hamilton's first report on the public credit. Hamilton's report on manufactures followed the second report for establishing public credit on December 5, 1791, a year later. While the first report dealt with issues that were specific to financing the War of Independence, the last two can be said to have created the Hamiltonian system of government, which affects the electorate in the United States today. To see how Hamilton's ongoing programs have played out, there is no better source than Tom DiLorenzo's Hamilton's Curse. But back to Hamilton's second report, which will be called the report on a national bank to avoid confusion. Hamilton opened with his statement, the said secretary further respectfully reports that from a conviction, as suggested in his report number one herewith presented, that a national bank is an institution of primary importance to the prosperous administration of the finances and would be of the greatest utility in the operations connected with the support of the public credit, his attention has been drawn to devising the plan of such an institution upon a scale which will entitle it to the confidence and be likely to render it equal to the exigencies of the public. It is particularly important to examine this statement under a microscope 
given 21st century problems associated with central banking in the United States and throughout the world. Hamilton's model of central banking was the Bank of England. And for finance in general, Louis XIV's finance minister, Jean-Baptiste Colbert, who Hamilton had called the Great Colbert. It is true that Colbert had seemed to create financial miracles in keeping the French monarchy afloat through Louis XIV's incessant wars and outlays for luxuries such as the building of the Palace of Versailles. The French people ultimately had paid the price of Colbert's excessive taxation policy that left the aristocracy and the clergy unaffected. It was Colbert who had claimed the art of taxation consists in so plucking the goose as to obtain the largest possible amount of feathers with the smallest possible amount of hissing. History reveals that Colbert had merely succeeded in kicking the can down the road. Louis XIV died in 1715 to be followed by a regency ignorant of finance. It succumbed to the magic of John Law's Mississippi scheme with its associate, uh, associated expansion of paper credit. By the end of 1720, the resulting financial bubble had collapsed, leaving the French people in further difficulty and French central bank discredited. The natural productive forces of the French economy allowed it to survive through most of the 18th century, but the central banking lesson had not been learned, and the French monarchy compounded the problem with involvement in wars, including the Seven Years' War, which they lost, and America's War of Independence, which decimated the already weakened treasury. The stage was set for the French Revolution. The storming of the Bastille had occurred on July 14, 1789. Thomas Jefferson had been in Europe in various roles from August 1784 until his return to the United States in September 1789. On August 8, 1788, the Royal Treasury of France had been declared empty. Three days after storming of the Bastille, the first emigres fleeing the revolution left France. By the time Hamilton drafted his report on a national bank, it should have been clear that central banking had been a major part of the chaos in France. Hamilton found it necessary to ignore that example and base his proposal solely on the credibility of the Bank of England. The Britannica website describes the founding of the Bank of England. The Bank of England was incorporated by Act of Parliament in 1694 with the immediate purpose of raising funds to allow the English government to wage war against France in the Low Countries. A royal charter allowed the bank to operate as a joint stock bank with limited liability. No joint stock banks were permitted in England and Wales until 1826. This special status and its position as the government's banker gave the bank considerable competitive advantages. The Bank of England's association with war financing ought to make us suspicious. But how sound had the Bank of England been up to the time of Hamilton's report to uh, Congress, and how sound has it been since? Britannica continues. The bank was threatened by the economic instability that accompanied the French Revolution and Napoleonic Wars but its standing was also considerably enhanced by its actions in raising funds for Britain's involvement in those conflicts. Concerning ownership and function, the bank was privately owned until uh, 1946 when it was nationalized. It uh, funds public borrowing issues, banknotes, and manages the country's gold and foreign exchange reserves. If we ignore French uh, financial disasters and central banking and accept Britannica's explanation of the soundness of the Bank of England, Hamilton's assumption of that bank as a model for the United States central bank 
seems reasonable. There is a cautionary comment in Britannica, uh, the Britannica description, however. The bank's freedom of action in this regard was considerably enhanced when it was given the power to determine short-term interest rates in 1997. The Bank of England is a member of the European Central Bank and part of its general council. Notice that as of March of 2023, the advantage to the public in granting central banks the power to set short-term interest rates rather than financial markets is very much in question. Federal regulators in the United States have focused on credit risk while ignoring interest rate risk. Central banks around the world have artificially dropped short-term interest rates to near zero. And in combination with the creation of new money and credit by central banks, they have created financial bubbles that ultimately are not sustainable. Market forces have um, forced central banks to raise short-term interest rates in an attempt to contain the effects of inflation on the general price level. Banks like Silicon Valley Bank, Signature Bank, Credit Suisse, and First Republic Bank, which had been considered credit risk-worthy, were found to be insolvent because they had taken on too much risk in government bonds, once thought to be risk-free. This is another side of the story, however which can be seen at the Mises Institute website. After decades of civil war, the British crown found itself financially destitute. Here is how the problem was resolved. A policy of war and militarism is expensive, and the British government found in the 1690s that it was short of money and its credit poor. It seemed impossible after a half century of civil wars and a poor record of repayment for the government to tap sufficient savings by inducing people to buy its bonds. The British government would have loved to levy higher taxes, but England had just emerged from a half century of civil wars, much of which had been waged over the, uh, the king's attempt to extend his taxing power. The taxing route was therefore politically unfeasible. A committee of the House of Commons was therefore formed in early 1693 to figure out how to raise money for the war effort. There came to the committee the ambitious Scottish promoter William Patterson, who in behalf of his financial group proposed a remarkable new scheme to Parliament. In return for a set of important special privileges from the state, Patterson and his clique would form the Bank of England, which would issue new notes, much of which would be used to finance the English deficit. In short, since there were not enough private savers willing to finance the deficit, Patterson and his group were graciously willing to buy government bonds providing they could do so with newly created out-of-thin-air banknotes carrying a raft of special privileges with them. This was a splendid deal for Patterson and company, and the government benefited from the flim-flam of a seemingly legitimate bank's financing their debts. Remember that the device of open government paper money uh, had only just been invented in Massachusetts in 1690. As soon as the Bank of England was chartered by Parliament in 1694, King William himself and various members of Parliament rushed to become shareholders of the new money, the new money factory before a uh, factory they had just created. This is more realistic uh, perspective of the Bank of England model. Hamilton was proposing to be the first bank of the United States. No doubt Hamilton also ignored this part of the story reported at the Mises Institute website. The Bank of England promptly issued the enormous debt of £760,000, 
most of which was used to buy government debt. This had an immediate and considerable inflationary effect. And in the short span of two years, the Bank of England was insolvent after a bank run and insolvency gleefully abetted by its competitors, the private goldsmiths, who were happy to return to it, uh, to it the swollen Bank of England notes for redemption in specie. The Mises Institute site continues. It was at this point that a fateful decision was made, one which set a grave and mischievous precedent for both British and American banking. In May 1696, the English government simply allowed the Bank of England to suspend specie payment, that is, to refuse to pay its contractual obligations of redeeming its notes in gold, yet to continue in operation issuing notes and enforcing payments upon its own debtors. The Bank of England suspended specie payment, and its notes promptly fell to a 20% discount against specie, since no one knew if the bank would ever resume payment in gold. The straits of the Bank of England were shown in an account submitted at the end of 1696, when its notes outstanding were £765,000 backed by only £36,000 in cash. In those days, Few note holders were willing to sit still and hold notes when there was such a low fraction of cash. Yes, in an early, uh, this is an early example of fractional reserve banking at a ratio of 21 and a quarter to one. This was the British banking tradition Hamilton was attempting to graft onto the United States with its with his first bank of the United States proposal. The bursting of the South Sea bubble in 1720 was a mixed blessing for the Bank of England. In the wake of the South Sea collapse, the Bank of England was itself subject to a bank run and was again allowed to suspend specie payments indefinitely. Still, the ignominious end of the South Sea bubble left the Bank of England striding like a colossus unchallenged over the English banking system. A similar run on the Bank of England was precipitated in 1745 by the rising of Bonnie Prince Charlie in Scotland, and once more, the bank was permitted to suspend payments for a while. The picture only got worse. During the late 18th century, the Bank of England's policy of monetary expansion formed the base of a pyramid for a flood of small private partnerships in note-issue banks. These country banks increasingly used Bank of England notes as reserves and pyramided their own notes on top of them. By 1793, there were nearly 400 fractional reserve banks of issue in England. Inflationary financing of the lengthy generations-long wars with France, beginning in the 1790s led to the suspension of specie payment by one-third of English banks in 1793, followed by the Bank of England's suspension of specie payments in 1797. That suspension was joined in by other banks who then had to redeem their obligations in Bank of England notes. There is no way that this record of bank failure and corruption could be spun into the myth of the soundness of the Bank of England. And yet somehow, that is what Hamilton did. Washington had an opportunity to veto the legislation creating the first bank of the United States, and he cautiously sought the opinion of both his Secretary of State, Thomas Jefferson, and his Attorney General, Edmund Randolph. Both counseled Washington that the legislation was unconstitutional. He then turned their comments over to the Secretary of the Treasury, Alexander Hamilton. Tom DiLorenzo describes what happened next in Hamilton's curse. President Washington asked Hamilton 
to respond to Randolph and Jefferson. He did, with 15,000 plus words. This was his opinion as to the constitutionality of the Bank of the United States. The crux of his opinion was that Jefferson did not understand the meaning of the word necessary. Although Webster's Dictionary defined the word as meaning essential, indispensable, inevitable, and required, Hamilton argued that it is a matter of opinion. Powers enumerated in the Constitution ought to be construed on principles of liberal construction, he said, in advancement of the public good. This would require giving politicians like himself great latitude of discretion in deciding the limits of federal governmental powers. In other words, such powers should be made up, even fabricated, on the whims of politicians posing as guardians of the public good. George Washington's former military aide, Hamilton, got his way over the opinions of Washington's chief legal advisor, Randolph, and the man who had authored the Declaration of Independence. It was not Washington's best work, and although subsequent United States central banks have been defeated, the nation has been saddled with the current Federal Reserve System since 1913. In that time, the Federal Reserve System has managed to destroy 94% of the value of the 1914 dollar and it remains unaudited in spite of the efforts of former Texas Representative Ron Paul and his son, Senator Rand Paul. To understand the larger implications uh, of this tragic decision, one should get a copy of Tom DiLorenzo's Hamilton's Curse. Let's take a look at Hamilton's report on the National Bank and its consequences. We should not assume that all elements of Hamilton's National Bank were bad. For example, as one scans through the lengthy report at the National Archives, the following ideas encountered. The confining of the right of the bank to contract debts to the amount of its capital is an important precaution, which is not to be found in the Constitution of the Bank of North America, and which, while the fund consists wholly of coin, would be a restriction attended with inconveniences, but would be free from any if the co composition of it should be such as is now proposed. The restriction exists in the establishment of the Bank of England and as a source of security is worthy of imitation. The consequence of exceeding the limit there is that each stockholder is liable to the excess in proportion to his interest in the bank. Contrast that with the current Federal Reserve System and the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation mechanism, plus the various bailout schemes that have been implemented, including the Troubled Asset Relief Program, or TARP, but Hamilton's words to Congress meant little. It was his actions that counted. USA Today has done a timeline of bailouts of politically preferred firms over the nation's history, and this is the first entry. 1792, Bank of the United States crisis. Rampant speculation by prominent bankers and expansion of credit caused the 1792 Bank of the United States crisis. The bankers tried to drive up the prices of securities, but defaulted on their loans, which led to falling prices and a bank run. Treasury Secretary Alexander Hamilton authorized purchases to prevent the collapse of the securities market, marking the first time the federal government ever intervened in the federal in the financial markets. Economic I'm sorry, economic historians credit Hamilton's actions with setting the standard still in place today for central banks which is that the federal government should act as a lender of last resort. A full discussion of the Panic of 1792 could take days. 
But the Mises Institute has this summary. Hamilton's crisis management in 1791 and 1792 may illustrate the moral hazard problem that is ever-present in financial crisis management. By coming to the aid of the markets in 1791, Hamilton may have encouraged the speculative bubble of 1792 by making market participants believe that there was something like a Hamilton put on the table. Two centuries later, it was said that Alan Greenspan's similar actions in dealing with the Asian, Russian, and long-term capital management crises of the 1990s created the notion of a Greenspan put that fueled the so-called dot-com bubble of the late 1990s. Effective management of a financial crisis may sow the seeds of another one. Clearly, the recurring crisis we are seeing in the banking sector in the late 20th and early 21st century have roots in Hamilton's first central bank, the Bank of the United States. Wow, thank you, Phil. Especially valuable to see the larger perspective because Hamilton is arguing that, hey, you know, these central bank ideas, they've been practiced in France. Of course, he doesn't mention France, but practiced in England are certainly the way to go. And that's a, a way to actually uh, benefit our economy. And it's it's interesting to see his, uh, his reasoning here uh, in that opening statement that uh, uh, the, the National Bank is an institution of primary importance to the prosperous administration of the finances and would be of greatest utility in the operations connected with the support of the public credit. No mention here of the Constitution. No mention here of, of whether this issue is constitutional. And you're absolutely right. When he was critiqued by uh, uh, Jefferson and Randolph, he bounced back and redefined the word necessary <laughs> rather than something that's indispensable. He really began to argue for this idea that there's implied powers in the Constitution. You can read all day and all night, Article 1, Section 8 of the U.S. Constitution, you'll see nothing in there about a central bank, nothing in there about a national bank. Yes, Congress has given power to to coin money. Excuse me, I almost said print, not print. No, there's no permission to print money, but to coin money, regulate the value thereof. In other words, say, okay, this is how much silver goes into a quarter and how much silver goes into a dime and, and so on and so forth. So it is to coin money, not to print money. Fiat currency, money printed with nothing behind it at all, is not a power given to our Congress. We never permitted them to do what they have been doing uh, in, in this case, in uh, the first bank and then the second bank and now what we're under today, the, the Federal Reserve. All of these have gotten engaged in creating money out of thin air. And I appreciate, Phil, the history you bring that, uh, that this is what they did in England. And this is what brought uh, great disaster, as well as great wealth to the people who were running the scheme. In other words, if uh, the three of us, uh, Mike, myself and Phil, were to decide that Mike got a printing press in his basement. Uh, Mike, I think you're going to like this idea. You know, you got the printing press in your basement and you were given the power to create all the money that everyone in the United States had to use. I think you'd like that idea because you immediately would become the wealthiest person in America because you could print all the money you want and you can keep as much of it for yourself or uh, loan it out at interest and, and see as everybody had to come to you uh, to gain that money. They would be all dependent on your printing press. And so you became the source of money 
but you got to create the money out of thin air. It cost you nothing because actually the taxpayers are going to pay for the printing press. Taxpayers are going to pay for the ink. The taxpayers are going to pay for the paper. So you, you pay absolutely nothing. And that's exactly the scheme we have with the Federal Reserve. They get rich off of us. And uh, we're not even told who uh, the uh, owners of the Federal Reserve are. Uh, some international bankers, I think they would be better called banksters, uh, criminals of a very high degree. They get to print money out of thin air, loan it to the American people, and then charge us interest that we have to pay the interest on this debt that costs them nothing. What a scheme. And by the way, it's a scheme that uh, is designed to impoverish and to create uh, for each of us a situation where we become debt slaves and our children and grandchildren, the generation after generation will be debt slaves. And we know that uh, God gives us the standard in, in his word, contrary to Alexander Hamilton, who thought the government, the federal government being in debt was a good thing. Because, oh, if you're in debt and you're, you're borrowing money all the time and you're paying on it, you'll get a good credit score with those bankers around the world who are loaning money. But the scripture says contrary, and this is uh, Proverbs chapter 22 and verse 7. The rich rules over the poor and the borrower is servant to the lender. Anytime you go into debt, the word of God says you, in a sense, become a slave of the one that uh, you are indebted to. You've borrowed money and you're obligated to pay it back to them. Uh, so this whole scheme that Alexander Hamilton was cooking up was really based on his idea that you could look at the Constitution and come up with implied powers, things not literally stated in the Constitution, and you could actually yeah, do whatever you please. Whatever you thought was to the benefit of the people, and that would mean whatever the politicians thought would get them re-elected. <laughs> so, of course, you know what that's going to mean. The politicians are going to tax and spend and tax and spend because the more they tax and spend, if they are spending in a way that benefits the majority of the people who are voting for them, the majority of people voting for them are going to continue to elect them because, after all, if you do things that take money out of the pockets of one group of people and put it into the pockets of the people who vote for you, you are going to get reelected time and time again. Yes, vote buying is, is what we see with that whole scheme. But uh, Hamilton's uh, scheme here uh, was ultimately opposed. Yes, there was a time in which the first central bank uh, national Bank existed, but it was brought to an end. And it's very interesting to see what happened when it was brought to an end uh, in 1811. It was not reauthorized and it was closed. And uh, the banksters in England, particularly Rothschild, it may have been Mayor Rothschild, I have to double check that, but uh, he said, if they will not have a central bank, they will have a war. That's right. He threatened war against the United States if the central bank was not reinvigorated, if it was not continued. Why was he do that? Because he had his fingers in that central bank. He was profiting enormously in that central bank. In fact, he was gaining in great power over our country, a foreign international bankster getting his fingers into the power center of the United States. And so we did have a war exactly as he predicted. Why, why did we have a war with Great Britain? Because the Rothschilds, through this uh, English central bank, uh, that bank, the Bank of England, had loaned so much money to the government of England that in essentially they were a servant 
the government of England was a servant to the Bank of England, just as the scriptures say. The servant is bar the the lender is borrower. Excuse me, the borrower is servant to the lender, and that's exactly what happened with the the nation of England. They became a servant to the Rothschilds who ran the Bank of England. And hey, when they told England, you're going to go to war against the United States. Well, the English crown didn't make a difference. Parliament didn't make a difference. They just basically had to do what the bankers told them to do. Now, of course, I'm simplifying something that obviously was done a lot more convoluted and secretive, backroom deals, smoke room, all those kind of things took place uh, to bring about the War of 1812. But we had the War of 1812 as promised by the central bankers because we ended the central bank, which was profiting them and giving them enormous power and influence in the United States. So after the war was done, the War of 1812, guess what happened again? Certain politicians, and you must guess that somehow they were persuaded, perhaps with some pecuniary advantages of some sort or another, they were persuaded to craft and create a second national bank of the United States. And that second national bank went the same route as the first national bank on a very destructive path and uh, so on until Andrew Hamilton came to, became president and he made one of his commitments as president that he was going to kill that bank and those wicked and he used a very flowery or rather uh, uh, engaging language regarding these people who were basically they were of their father, the devil. Um, and uh, he ended uh, the second and his life was threatened. I mean, there was threats on his life from many angles because these people, uh, these banksters have a lot of money and they can hire all kinds of hitmen. But Andrew Hamilton, I mean, uh, uh, Andrew Jackson, excuse me, stood on the principle, no central bank because the central bank is unconstitutional. It's not permitted by our constitution and it will be destructive. And so he brought it in to the second national bank, but that wasn't, they weren't done. The, the international banksters weren't done. And so in 1913, they brought about what is not actually entitled the third national bank because it's even different than the first and the second. But first and the second always had some sense in which, you know, our government was actually involved in creating it and maintaining it and so on and so forth. But this third one, they didn't, they didn't hide it at all. The Federal Reserve is not federal in any way, shape or form any more than Federal Express is federal. It has no reserves whatsoever. It creates money out of thin air and it's owned by foreign international banksters. In other words, the criminals overseas own and control our entire economy. And they created, and you're right, Phil, they, they've stolen 94% of the value of a 1914 dollar. They've stolen the wealth of America to the tune of 94% of our wealth since it was created in 1913. They're robbers on a gargantuan scale that we can only barely begin to imagine. But what happens when a central bank takes control like that, it, that you really have a government that's run by foreigners. Foreigners behind the scenes are the ones who decide who gets elected. They're the ones that decide how the votes are going to be counted. You know, that's a huge problem we have in our country. Uh, who counts the votes is more important than uh, who actually casts the votes. Uh, we've got enormous problems because we have foreign interests who are in control of our economy and control of our money and basically who have the, the power to control 
almost all the politicians. There's few that are not. And I think uh, you mentioned Ron Paul and his son, Rand Paul, both of them, because they called for an auditing of the Fed. Yeah, they didn't get anywhere with that, those calls. But uh, they're ones who don't appear to be bought and paid for by these criminals. But most of the rest, you know, including the White House and maybe the members of the Supreme Court, but certainly many members of Congress, both the House and the Senate, are bought and paid for entirely. And they're under uh, the sway of what these central criminals, central bank criminals are about. And they're supporting them. They're not going to challenge that at all. Uh, there was one president, however, who decided to challenge the whole system. You see the Federal Reserve note, if you pull out a, you know, one of those pieces of paper from your wallet and take a close look at it, it says Federal Reserve note. I'm telling you, it's really not from the U.S. government, but it's payable for all uh, debts, legal and, and uh, private. And by the way, I, I went to pay a bill recently here at a, a well-known storage company all over the uh, all over the United States, maybe the largest storage company in, in the country. I went to pay with cash, and they said you can't pay with cash. And I said, wait a minute, let me let me look at what this bill says right here. It says legal tender for all debts, public and private. So this is not a public, con I mean, this is a private enterprise, but you're refusing to accept payment in this bill that is stated on its face must be received as a payment for all debts, public and private. So, sorry, that's our policy. You can't pay here in cash any longer. And well, we know what that is part, part of pushing us all towards the, uh, the one world currency of the Antichrist beast system and so forth. And no cash will be allowed because cash is what they cannot control. And so they're trying to eliminate cash everywhere they possibly can. The other thing that shocked me was going into the post office, just down the road here, the post office to uh, buy some stamps. And they also refuse to accept cash. Just wait a minute. This is the federal government. They say this is they're fully backing this money, but you won't accept it here at a federal institution called the post office. What's going on here? Again, they're trying to eliminate it because the central bankers on the international scale aren't happy with simply controlling all of our finances here in this country through the, the Federal Reserve. They want absolute control over every single transaction of every person. And that's really what they're working towards. And I think this whole scheme was set up to ultimately lead to that. I'm, you know, getting into a bit of prophetic scripture here to talk about Revelation 13, but you can take a look at it yourself, Revelation chapter 13 and the verses there that talk about the Antichrist financial system by which no one will be permitted to buy or to sell except they accept the mark of the beast, which means they worship the satanic religion and they're part of that satanic religion. And that's a shocking statement that there will come a day in the world where every single human being will have a digital currency and a digital ID. And their digital ID and their digital currency will be so connected and controlled that the central system, the artificial intelligence, mega computers, can determine if they are in compliance with this satanic religion. And if they're not in compliance, their money gets turned off. Oh yeah, you might have all these you know, digits in your so-called digital wallet, but you can't spend it if they don't permit you to spend it. And you think, this is crazy. That could never happen. Well, it is already happening in China. And since China is the rollout of what this looks like, their social credit score, if you speak ill of the government or if you do anything that you know the government may not like, like jaywalking or whatever, they can reduce your social credit score such that you may not be able to travel, you may not be able to buy certain things, you may not be able to get into the college. All kinds of parts of your life are going to be restricted 
because you're being punished by the government for not doing exactly what they command you to do in every little part of your life, including everything you say, which the, the, the communists are tracking. And of course, that kind of totalitarian control is the exact opposite, the exact opposite of what our founders designed this constitutional republic to do. So anyway, I'm off on a tangent here, but uh, Hamilton started this. And that's where I would say he is guilty. And I agree with you, Phil. People ought to get to uh, Tom DiLorenzo's excellent book, Hamilton's Curse, to understand the large aspect of what Hamilton started that actually Lincoln continued and FDR expanded in an enormous way and LBJ and just the whole history of this uh, really unjust and wicked, uh, unconstitutional system of money and handling money in our country. And I believe if we can wake up enough Americans, we can bring a halt to this uh, dive that's taking place right now towards even more centralized control than the Federal Reserve already has over our finances and uh, a dive that will take us directly into digital ID for every human being and your digital ID be connected to your digital currency and you can only buy and sell if the beast system gives you permission uh, to buy and to sell. Well, Mike, what are your thoughts on uh, Hamilton's second report? Thanks, Pastor Whitney. You know, I searched and searched for any cases dealing with Hamilton's second report on public credit. I didn't find any. In fact, the only thing I found in my legal research was a law review article from NYU in 2021, and it was barely referenced to make it useful. In fact, I can quote it right now. The inclusions are limited to, quote, the corporate form is inextricably intertwined with American national identity. One of the earliest business charters approved in the United States was for the National Bank in response to Alexander Hamilton's second report on public credit, which enabled centralized development of America's fledgling financial sector. End quote. That was it. And that's from, that's from an article called Hippies in the Boardroom, a Historical Critique of Addressing Stakeholder Interests Through Private Ordering by Ashley E. Jaramillo. And I know her name sounds almost like mine, but we're not related. So I, <laughs> I kept searching and searching, and I actually found another old Supreme Court case that cites the first report on public credit. Uh, that case has been recognized as overruled by the 16th Amendment. And if I were to speak on that, we'd go down an entirely different rabbit hole. I didn't want to give up. So I kept searching and because I didn't want to come on here and just say, hey, Pastor Whitney, I've got nothing. But I finally <laughs> found a Supreme Court case from 1869. And it speaks to the second report, but it calls it report on a national bank instead. And in that case, Congress had passed a law that imposed a 10% tax on notes of private persons, state banks, and state banking associations. The Supreme Court ultimately held that the tax could stand because the taxing power was authorized. So I'm just going to read the text that cites Hamilton word for word. Quote, Mr. Hamilton, in his celebrated report on a national bank to the House of Representatives, discusses at some length the question whether or not it would be expedient to substitute the Bank of North America, located in Philadelphia, and which had accepted a charter from the legislature of Pennsylvania, in the place of organizing a new bank. And although he finally came to the conclusion to organize a new one, there is not a suggestion or intimation as to the illegality or constitu unconstitutionality of this state bank. The act incorporating this bank, passed February 25th, 1791, prohibited the establishment of any other by Congress during its charter, but said nothing as to the state banks. A like prohibition is contained in the act incorporating the Bank of the United States of 1816. The, co the constitutionality 
of a bank incorporated by Congress was first settled by the judgment of this court in McCulloch versus the state of Maryland in 1819. In that case, both the council and the court recognized the legality and constitutionality of banks incorporated by the states. The constitutionality of the Bank of the United States was again discussed and decided in the case of Osborne versus United States, and in connection with this, was argued and decided at a point in the case of the United States Bank versus the Planters Bank of Georgia, which was common to both cases. The question was whether the circuit courts of the United States had jurisdiction of a suit brought by the United States Bank against the Planters Bank of Georgia, incorporated by that state, and in which the state was a stockholder. The court held in both cases that it had. Since the adoption of the Constitution down to the present act of Congress and the case now before us, the question in Congress and in the courts has been not whether the state banks were constitutional institutions, but whether Congress had the power conferred on it by the states to establish a national bank. As we have said, that question was closed by the judgment of this court in McCulloch versus the state of Maryland. At the time of the adoption of the Constitution, there were four state banks in existence and in operation, one in each of the states of Pennsylvania, New York, Massachusetts, and Maryland. The one in Philadelphia had been originally chartered by the Confederation, but subsequently took a charter under the state of Pennsylvania. The framers of the Constitution were, therefore, familiar with these state banks and the circulation of their paper as money, and were also familiar with the practice of the states that was so common to issue bills of credit, which are bills issued by the state exclusively on its own credit and intended to circulate as currency redeemable at a future day. They guarded the people against the evils of this practice of the state governments by the provision in the 10th section of the first article that no state shall emit its bills of credit and in the same section guard against any abuse of paper money of the state banks in the following words, nor make anything but gold and silver coin a tender in payment of debts. As bills of credit were thus entirely abolished, the paper money of the state's banks was the only currency or circulating medium to which this prohibition could have had any application and was the only currency except gold and silver left to the states. The prohibition took from this paper all coercive circulation and left it to stand alone upon the credit of the banks. It was no longer an irredeemable currency, as the banks were under obligation, including frequently that of its stockholders, to redeem their paper in circulation in gold or silver at the counter. The state banks were left in this condition by the Constitution, untouched by any other pro provision. As a consequence, they were gradually established in most or all of the states and had not been encroached upon or legislated against or in any other way interfered with by acts of Congress for more than three quarters of a century from 1787 to 1864, end quote. Now, ultimately, in this case, the court's rulings ended up being that the term direct taxes, as used in Article 1, Section 9, requiring direct taxes to be apportioned among the several states according to their respective numbers, is understood as limited to capitation taxes and taxes on land. And the court also held that the act requiring all banks to pay a tax of 10% on the amount of notes of any state bank paid out after a certain day does not impose a direct tax within the Constitution Article 1, Section 9. So that's what I've got. Uh, it, it's a lot more than I had anticipated three quarters <laughs> of the way through my research, Pastor Whitney. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much, Mike. So it, it sounds like 
the courts have basically never re-examined McCullough v. v. Maryland. If I remember, that case was that uh, Maryland saw that this was an unjust system in terms of its own state banks. Had a there's no level playing field with the federal bank, the national bank, and therefore they decided we're going to tax the national bank to create an equal playing field between the banks in our state and also you know the federal bank. And the, basically, McCullough v. Maryland said, no, 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 no. You don't get to tax the federal government. You can't do that. You must leave the federal government alone. But we can tax you, but you can't tax us was kind of my read, at least. I don't know if that's a fair summary of McCullough v. Maryland, but it sounds like that's never been challenged since uh, since the 18, I think it was 1830s of McCullough v. Maryland. Yeah. Well, the court's basically saying that that's settled law. And uh, this is a case that when you go back and look at it, it's been cited in other contexts. So, I mean, this case has not even been overruled in this case, talking about how that's settled law. So you got a lineage of cases that, you know, don't want to touch McCulloch. Yeah. <laughs> and I guess they're really, since the Federal Reserve's formation, they're still relying on that that ruling. Uh, because here you have something that's very questionable that you can even call it a national bank as the owners who, by the way, their identity, the true identity of the owners is not revealed. We know it's owned by member banks, but who own the member banks? That's all hidden information. Nobody's supposed to know the actual owners. That is those who actually profit from creating fiat currency in our land. Like I said, Mike, if you were the one to print the money, you would immediately become the wealthiest and the most powerful person in America because everybody'd have to get the money from you. You printed the money out of thin air at no cost to yourself, and you then loaned it to us at whatever interest rate you decided. You mm. get to choose the interest rate. Would that be a fair system? Of course not. Uh, that's exactly what we have with the Federal Reserve. It sounds fair to me. You know, I apologize <laughs> if I sounded out of breath when I first came on. I had run down to my basement after I heard you say that to, to check to see if it was true. <laughs> <laughs> you, you didn't find a printing press out there? <laughs> Unfortunately not. I was very disappointed. Oh, no. <laughs> you know, it's interesting that uh, um, Hamilton had claimed uh, that he had the, the right to redefine necessary. And I guess his argument was that uh, um, a bank was necessary. Well, if you look at the history of the United States, um, the, the United States federal government has operated for many, many years without a central bank and uh, obviously uh, did not uh, go out of business. I mean, we still have a federal government. And uh, although the state banks originally, you know, operated in that manner as the official bank of the state, I don't think there are any banks today that could be called uh, uh, the official bank of Pennsylvania or what have you. So all of those operate simply from their treasury. They operate uh, uh, quite effectively to to transfer funds back and forth. So there, um, there might be one. I think I've heard that North Dakota, if it's still standing, had had a state bank. And I think it was maybe the only state in the union uh, that had a state bank. Well, it seems like a good idea. Maybe we ought to go back to that then. Yeah. And the, the thing that we're facing in terms of, you know, the monetary crisis that we're under is trillions upon trillions of dollars have been created out of thin air. And these trillions upon trillions of dollars, we haven't seen the impact in our country completely yet. Because up until very recently, the dollar, U.S. dollar, remained the uh, world reserve currency because the petro 
dollar agreement was that every country had to get dollars, U.S. dollars, Federal Reserve notes, in order to buy oil anywhere in the world. That was the thing that was, uh, you know, uh, created in 72 with OPEC and so on. And that is now broken. You know, China has cut deals with Saudi Arabia and, and other countries are cutting deals. Iran. So there's now no longer a necessity for all the countries of the world that want oil to get American dollars to purchase oil. And so there's actually trillions of dollars out there in, in foreign countries that some of these countries are recognizing we don't need this money anymore. We're going to trade it for something that's of worth because the United States exports very little and anything that we want, we don't need from them. We need it from other countries. And so there's trillions of dollars that are heading to our shores, I believe, in the near term future, which is going to result in hyperinflation here in America. And we're going to see, I think, a, a scene somewhat like Weimar Germany uh, at the, uh, you know, just before the rise of the Nazis, where there was uh, worthless pieces of paper that were German marks. In fact, they were printing them so fast, they stopped printing them on both sides. Now, the German marks, I, someone gave me one once, a German mark was only printed on one side during that time of hyperinflation. And these German marks are so useless, people use them as note paper or people used them as wallpaper. You know, wallpaper, they're absolutely worthless pieces of paper and people knew it. And so people would not want the mark. They would want something of value, another currency. Uh, and perhaps that's the future of our U.S. dollar. Uh, and, and if it is, it, it's going to be a very, very hard time for, for America. Well, I think uh, this counterfeit money circulates and, and gets into the banking system, obviously. And while it's in the banking system, it interacts with uh, fractional reserve principles, which um, I, I think today you have to keep uh, uh, $1 in reserve for every $8 that uh, are circulating as credit. So basically, there's this explosive uh, uh, factor that we have to deal with. And the, the problem here is uh, all the attention has been on so-called credit risk. I mean, we're all conditioned to think in terms of individuals uh, that we borrow money from, that we, we loan money to. Uh, we're, we're all conditioned to this idea of you know, uh, how credit worthy are the parties. Well, there's a problem when one of the parties, the, the federal government, can artificially, in, in total uh, independence of the market system, can create an interest rate. Okay. Now, at some point, the, the, uh, the market intervenes and says, hey, enough's enough. And uh, the, the officials in the government are forced to adjust the, the interest rate. But the, the basic idea, uh, governments want to drive the interest rate down as low as possible. And they, in order to facilitate all kinds of transactions that are favorable to them. And so here we have a situation where the interest rate was in effect driven down to uh, a real zero interest uh, rate. I mean, if you, if you factored inflation, inflation, you would realize that, hey, you put your money in a bank, you know, it was coming out less valuable than when you put it in. So now we're dealing with something entirely different. And this is what became apparent with uh, Silicon Valley Bank, Swiss, Credit Suisse, and, and Signature Bank, that we're dealing with something entirely different. It's not credit risk that we're dealing with here. It is interest rate risk. Now, what happens when an interest rate is forced up finally after being suppressed? It's finally forced up by market forces. Well, we have some history here. We could look at the 1970s. 
we had very high interest rates during the 1970s, reacting to prior events and, and, and so forth, just like we are today. Well, okay, what does that mean? Um, that means that a bond issued by the government uh, is now worth, uh, let us say, uh, 10 or, or 20 years out. It's now worth only, let's say, 60% of what it was worth before. Ooh, now we're talking about the kind of thing that all of these banks could be exposed to. And that's the thing that is so, so dangerous uh, that that uh, people are completely unaware of. You had federal, federal regulators going into these banks and saying, hey, they're clean. Yes, from the standpoint of credit risk, but they're not, (laughs) they can't sustain themselves. They're going bankrupt. Yeah. So it's a it's a time for us to kind of soberly look at what's happening in the in the economy and look what's happening with this banking crisis that we're seeing. But it's all rooted in this idea that that Hamilton said, oh yeah, it's fine to create a central bank, and that central bank ultimately it's fine for that central bank to begin creating you know down the road things that were not actually connected to something of value, gold and silver. And, I, and this is why, like you mentioned, that the uh, uh, or, or or Mike that you mentioned in that case Osborne that the federal government restricted the states and they said, no, 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 you can only use gold and silver as payment for debt. It's got to be backed by gold and silver. You just can't create this paper currency out of thin air and use it uh, as currency. But that's exactly what the Federal Reserve has done. So it appears to me, and uh, I could be wrong here, but it appears to me that what the restriction was on the state governments should clearly be also a restriction on the federal government. The federal government could not create fiat currency. It could only uh, put paper out that was actually backed by gold and silver, which, by the way, used to be the case that there was so much gold in Fort Knox. That amount of gold was the amount of dollars that were in circulation. But I remember uh, Ron Paul, when he was congressman, uh, called for the auditing of Fort Knox. And guess what? They refused to open Fort Knox to the head of the finance committee in the House. They refused to allow him or anyone else to see the gold in Fort Knox. Could that be because there's no gold there? Maybe. But uh, when you go off a actual solid uh, uh, standard of worth and value and create paper money out of thin air, uh, you are courting extreme danger. I think that's where we're at today. You know how easy it is to inventory gold bars? <laughs> I mean, there's no excuse for, for not allowing an inventory. I mean, it's so so simple to perform by comparison with the, the inventories that somebody like a Walmart would have to or a Home Depot would have to perform, let's say, once a year in order to meet federal uh, reporting requirements as a <laughs> public organization. The other big question with gold, I understand, there was a huge amount of gold at the base of the World Trade Center. And what happened to that gold? Was it there when uh, 9-11 took place or was it already gone? I don't know the answer to that. And I don't know that anybody does uh, other than those who hold those kind of secrets uh, tight to the chest. But, what, I, you know, like we we all need to make decisions and obviously decisions regarding our, our finances and what may be coming down the pike at hyperinflation would mean that uh, the wise one is one who's going to say, I need to maybe diversify and not be just hold up with Federal Reserve notes or what we call dollars because there may come a day when like the Weimar German Republic where those pieces of paper suddenly become absolutely worthless. Can't even buy a loaf of bread with a whole wheelbarrow full of (laughs) of those notes. That may, may be where we are headed. And that would give them an excuse to say, ah, we've got to replace this 
let's move from the paper currency to a digital currency and everybody will be part of this new digital currency and it'll be secure and you can trust it and you know all the promises that the politicians will feed to us at, at that time but uh, uh, we ought to beware of those who come bearing gifts that uh, have nefarious uh, things tied to them behind. Well, this is We the People, the Constitution Matters, and coming to you over the Freedom Airways of WFYL. We invite you to join us next Friday morning at 8 a.m. as we continue our study of Hamilton's three reports to see how they have impacted our lives today.